This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Patreon. The COVID-19 crisis is making it clear that the creative system is broken, serving advertisers over artists. On Patreon, creators can build a more sustainable income source, and their fans get access to exclusive community and premium content through monthly memberships. If you're a creator or simply love one, check out Patreon.com now and change the way art is valued. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloranipa with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, June 11th. Today, the movement to defund the police. Joe Biden's history with law enforcement. And hope for people struggling after COVID. Defunding the police is a way to get at having a very serious conversation where people would like to have a shallow conversation. My name is Jonathan Williams. I am broadly a community organizer and I've been living here in Washington, D.C. It really gets us to think more creatively and expansively about why have we normalized making the government response to all of these social problems a law enforcement response. We don't even think about the extent to which we do that now. My name is Christy Lopez. I'm a professor at Georgetown Law School. I am the co-director of the Innovative Policing Project, and I was formerly an attorney with the United States Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. As part of the public budgeting process, these decisions are made every year. Over the years, more and more money has been concentrated in policing and in law enforcement. Um, It's been taken away from a lot of other social programs. And I don't think that it's any coincidence that during that same time period, police officers even are complaining about police officers having to do too much. We've starved a lot of other social programs We've underfunded everything from housing to education to mental health care. And that creates problems that then rise to the crisis level and police have to respond to them at a point where it's really hard to get a good outcome. So the idea has been around for decades, but it's really been popular in more liberal, progressive groups. And it's only really become mainstream in the last couple weeks in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd in the hands of police in Minneapolis. My name's Katie Mettler, and I'm a national breaking news reporter for The Washington Post. In this system, we call the police for everything. If there is a problem in schools, a police officer comes to respond to that, a police officer with a gun. The only way that our society knows how to respond to things is violence to suppress and like attack somebody and to be prepared with a gun to kill someone. Another big chunk of things that police shouldn't respond to are things that never should have been crimes in the first place. People talk about the criminalization of poverty, criminalization of addiction. There is a move to decriminalize some um, you know, marijuana use, but th- we need to think much more creatively and expansively about that. Using police to clear in, in, uh, homeless encampments or to move along people who are homeless who are on doorsteps or street corners, these are not, these are not law enforcement problems. 
Defunding the police is a concept that includes taking funds away from traditional police departments out of municipal budgets and redirecting those funds toward social services and other programs that might help to prevent crime and support communities in different ways, including funding mental health services, health care, schools, job growth, and violence prevention. So the idea is that there are a lot of issues that police are actually not very well equipped to deal with and don't really know how to deal with. And that you would do a lot more good if you gave that money to other departments, other organizations who know how to help people. Yeah, that one of the refrains you'll hear from police officers in the aftermath of, you know, a police shooting or some sort of confrontation is they'll say, well, you know, we're not social workers. And the response from people who support the defund the police movement is you're right, you're not social workers, you've not been trained to be social workers, and a lot of the work that society is asking you to do is not the traditional work of someone trained in policing. And so uh, we should give the funds that are going to police departments to groups and organizations that are trained in knowing how to respond, for example, to an opioid overdose, or to someone who's experiencing, you know, um, a mental health crisis, or to things that are even more proactive and not reactive, things like job growth, community centers, more funding towards education, things that might help, you know, prevent crime in the long run. So that's the idea of defunding the police. And it sounds like basically shrinking the size of police departments. But people are also talking about the idea of abolishing the police altogether. Yeah. So what advocates will say is that although the long term goal might be for some people to abolish police or or get rid of police in its current form, they, they would say that 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 is a long process and that it wouldn't be getting rid of public safety. The idea is that you're reimagining public safety is, is, the, is the language that they use. And that means creating a brand new system from the ground up uh, that's not rooted in some of the systemic problems that plague police departments today. And that if you were to think about public safety and public safety needs from the perspective of communities that have historically been over-policed or had really terrible relationships with police departments, I think that what you would imagine as a solution for them is not what police departments look like right now. Advocates say the structure of police departments today were built out of a long fraught history of racism and white supremacy. Police came out of slave patrols And that is largely true in the South, which, you know, that's a really important fact and feature of our history. They were sort of plantation owners banding together to make sure that they knew where those Black people that you owned were and what they were doing. That is a thing that has happened in our country. And that although there have been widespread calls for reform in, you know, in the the most recent decades, that that reform doesn't go far enough. Having done this work for so long as someone saying, you know, look, I've been doing police reform for all this time and I'm here to tell you it's not enough. People talk about police abolition. They're talking from what I've read literally abolishing the facets of policing that are the perpetuation, the continuation of white control over Black lives and Black bodies that have been in our country's history since slavery. 
reform is not the answer anymore and that eliminating the system altogether and creating a brand new system is the only option. So how are we starting to see this play out in real life with real police departments? There's been a a mixture of reactions around the country from people who have various opinions about the defunding police movement. There are people like President Donald Trump and Joe Biden who have come out and said they do not support the defund the police movement. No, I don't support defunding the police. I support conditioning federal aid to police based on whether or not they meet certain basic standards of decency and honorableness and, in fact, are able to demonstrate they can protect the community and everybody in the community. But Biden and and congressional Democrats have announced that they intend to pursue really robust reform. In in cities across the country, there has already been movement on the Defund the Police initiative. In Los Angeles, Mayor Eric Garcetti announced last week that he had previously planned to boost the spending of the Los Angeles Police Department, but instead has decided to redirect $250 million uh, from the city's budget toward those programs we, we talked about earlier, healthcare, jobs, and what he called peace centers. And about 150 million of that would come from the police department's budget. And then we have Minneapolis, where this all started. And the city there has actually been working for years on a lot of police reform initiatives. The city council is made up of a lot of progressive, liberal city council members who have actually been elected off of their police reform platforms. And even they are saying in the last week that the reforms that they have undertaken in Minneapolis clearly aren't enough. And there has been a pretty robust call from advocates in Minneapolis to defund the Minneapolis Police Department. And just last week, nine members of the Minneapolis City Council committed at a rally to begin disbanding and dismantling the Minneapolis Police Department with the hopes of using budget cuts and other uh, diversions from the police department's budget to begin building what what will be a new system of public safety. Wow, that's a pretty major step pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, what what they would say, and I've spoken with Lisa Bender, the the city council president, and what she would say is this has actually been a long time coming for them, that it's not an overnight decision, that their city has been talking about and thinking about reform for a long time, and that, in fact, in 2017, during a candidate forum for city council, these candidates for mayor and city council were asked, could you imagine Minneapolis without police? And quite a few of them said yes. And at the time, the idea seemed very radical. Less than three years later, the attitude of the community has really shifted and there is a a large call for this. I will also add, though, that there are others who are saying defunding the police departments, less police might not be the answer. There are some residents, especially in communities who have been disproportionately affected by crime, who say, we don't want less officers on the street. We want more. And we're really worried that there might be more violence. Um, We might be less safe if defunding police is the answer. Are there any examples of places where this idea has actually worked, where police departments have been defunded or eliminated? 
Yeah, the one cited most often is the police department in Camden, New Jersey, which is much smaller than Minneapolis, but in 2012 dissolved its police department entirely after advocates there um, and and public officials decided that the department was, was just too corrupt to be fixed. And now, seven years later, with this new public safety entity in place, the city's crime has dropped by close to half, and reports on the atmosphere there have said that the, the relationship between Camden residents and this new public safety entity is radically different from what it used to be. And, and what do police departments say about the fact that all over the country, people are essentially calling for them to cease to exist? Yeah, there's a variety of responses. The police unions, particularly the police union in Minneapolis, have forcefully pushed back on the idea of defunding police departments. They say that they need more resources and more money for more training to be able to enact the kind of reforms that they believe will make the institution of policing better. Other police chiefs across the country, for example, the police chief of Houston, which is the most diverse city in the nation, who says, I, I wholeheartedly agree that we must reform the institution of policing in America. He has called on numerous occasions uh, since Mr. Floyd's death for national reform and for all 18,000 police departments across the country to be required to follow the same rules when it comes to things like banning chokeholds or banning no-knock warrants or having universal protocols for the use of body cameras and body camera footage. There's even within police departments, there is a range of responses to the defund the police movement. But for the most part, the what they are saying is, you know, eliminating us altogether is not the answer. Reform is the answer. What advocates say is that although those reform efforts are very important, they have not been sufficient to produce the kind of change necessary to to really overhaul policing in America. I really like the way that Brittany Packnett puts it. She talks about how we need to imagine a future in which our communities are so healthy and safe that we don't need police. And I don't think there's anything wrong with aiming towards that goal. Katie Mettler is a breaking news and features reporter for The Post. Christy Lopez is a professor at Georgetown Law. I know it's hard to believe, but this very day, violent drug offenders will commit more than 100,000 crimes on this day alone. In the early 1990s, there was a wave of violent crime sweeping the country. There were calls from members of both parties to do something about this crime wave. In a nutshell, the president's plan doesn't include enough police officers to catch the violent thugs, not enough prosecutors to convict them, not enough judges to sentence them, and not enough prison cells to put them away for a long time. That's why right now, six out of every 10 criminals who are arrested on drug charges have their cases dropped. That's why we think the president should triple, triple the commitment that he's made tonight for police, prosecutors, and judges for our cities and our states. And Joe Biden was the chair of the Judiciary Committee, so he sponsored what he called the Biden crime bill. You must take back the streets. And you take back the streets by more cops, more prisons, more physical protection for the people. 
and this bill did a lot of things, including uh, paying for 100,000 new police officers across the country, a lot of new equipment, a lot of new laws, tougher sentencing, and incentives for states to expand or build prisons, which led to a lot of increase in incarceration. My name is Michael Kranish, and I'm an investigative political reporter at The Washington Post. So I hope this crime bill, when it passes, the Biden-Hatch crime bill, as it becomes law, God willing, I hope that we will have ended once and for all this notion that is a hangover from the 60s, that somehow Democrats are weak on crime and Democratic presidents are weak on crime and Republicans are tough on crime. The truth is every major crime bill since 1976 that's come out of this Congress, every minor crime bill has had the name of the Democratic senator from the state of Delaware, Joe Biden, on that bill and has had a majority vote of the Democratic members of the United States Senate on the bill. From this day forward. At the time it was passed, the, this was signed by President Bill Clinton. The Democrats, you know, saw it as a way to get rid of the complaint that they were weak on crime, as Republicans had alleged. So it was hailed as a bipartisan measure. Let us roll up our sleeves to roll back this awful tide of violence and reduce crime in our country. We have the tools now. Let us get about the business of using them. But in recent years, there's been a lot of criticism of the element of the bill that led to higher incarceration rates. This had a big impact on minority communities. You ashamed of that bill? Not at all. Um, and in fact, I drafted the bill, as you remember. I know that. And by the way, we talk about this mostly in terms of Black Lives Matter. Black lives really do matter. But the problem is institutional racism in America. And it seems like in this moment when you have protesters taking to the streets, talking about ideas of criminal justice and thinking about the election in November, this crime law and the way that how it's viewed is evolving, that seems to embody a lot about Joe Biden. Right. Well, when he passed the crime bill, he was very proud of the fact that he worked very closely with police unions and other police groups to write the crime bill. And uh, I would like to say... We would not have this bill. I've worked for five years in this bill with the police of this nation. Every one of those police organizations I've spoken about, their leaders have sat in my office, in my conference room, in my inner office for literally, if you add it all up, several hundred hours. We would not be here were it not for the police helping fashion this bill. And I want to pay public tribute to them now. And I would ask that uh, the letters associated with uh, each of the organizations I uh, I list it be entered in the record. Without objection, they will be so included. I wanted to look here at what were Biden's ties to police groups. I came across a quote in which Biden said in a talk with a police group, you guys sat at my conference table for six months and you guys wrote the bill. And I wondered, you know, frankly, was that a Bidenism, as some people you know, might call it? And so um, the mission there was to try to track down the individual who would have been at the conference table, as Biden said. As it turned out, there is a gentleman, Tom Scotto. He was the president at the time of the National Association of Police Organizations, which in turn represented 220,000 police uh, employees, which was the second largest group in the country at the time. And he said, yes, absolutely. Um, I worked in Biden's office in the Senate office, not for Biden, but basically was there as a um, representative of the police community. And I worked with Biden very closely. And he said that he would go into Biden's office and say, 
we need, you know, money for 100,000 police officers. And Biden said, yes, we need money for more equipment. Biden said, yes, we need money that would uh, be available to build more prisons. Biden's yes. In fact, he told me there was no instance in which Biden ever said no. So it underscored the extraordinary ties that existed between Biden and police groups and that Biden was extraordinarily proud of that. And is this normal for how legislation happens, that you would basically just have this outside group, this vested interest, essentially writing the legislation and handing it over to the lawmaker to become a law? Well, in some cases, it does happen. Um, Usually you find lawmakers saying, no, I wrote that bill. That's why I found Biden's quote so striking for him to say, you guys sat there and you wrote the bill. That's a pretty extraordinary uh, admission, yes, It would certainly be normal for a senator to seek the input of all affected parties. But to say that, you know, this group wrote the bill, I mean, that's that's pretty striking. And this was the wish list for police groups, and they got what they wished for. And so in your reporting on the genesis of this crime bill, did you get a sense of why Joe Biden was so passionate about doing it and why he felt like this was an opportunity for him politically? Yes, definitely Biden thought it was an opportunity. He he embraced this idea that he was relatively conservative on crime, that he worked with Republicans. He gave a very striking speech on the Senate floor in 1993 where he said, It doesn't matter whether or not the person that is accosting your son or daughter or my son or daughter, my wife, your husband, my mother, your parents, it doesn't matter whether or not they were deprived as a youth. It doesn't matter or not whether or not they had no background that enabled them to have to uh, become uh, uh, social, uh, become socialized into the fabric of society. It doesn't matter whether or not they're the victims of society. The end result is they're about to knock my mother on the head with a lead pipe, shoot my sister, beat up my wife, take on my sons. He basically said, if they're out there committing crimes and they might harm my family, then I think they should be put away. So I don't want to ask what made them do this. They must be taken off the street. Very strong stuff. Very different from the kind of things that uh, he says today. So how have we seen Joe Biden talking now about this bill that he passed in the 90s? Well, last year, Joe Biden talked to the NAACP, and he said that parts of this bill had failed. He wasn't really specific about that, although there's a presumption he was talking about the great increase in incarceration rates that followed passage of this bill. He also stressed that a lot of parts succeeded. There were elements in there um, to provide drug treatment, to provide counseling. There were a lot of other elements in the bill. But the, the big controversy that continues over this bill is the fact that it did lead to a significant increase uh, in incarceration rates. Um, And that's because when they decided to include in the bill hiring 100,000 new police officers, as the president of the police group who basically wrote this bill told me, you know, that in turn required uh, more arrests and led to the need for more prison spaces. The bill included billions of dollars for states. If they uh, adhered to certain sentencing guidelines, they'd get money to build more prisons. So basically the federal government was saying to states, Go tougher on criminals and we'll give you more money so you can put them in bigger prisons. So Biden acknowledges the fact that some of the outcomes of this legislation have been incredibly harmful to communities of color. 
Well, I, I don't know if he's said it quite as directly as you just did. However, if you look on his campaign website um, under criminal justice, he basically endorses the gist of a proposal from a group called the Brennan Center for Justice, which has proposed what it calls the Reverse Mass Incarceration Act. The basic premise behind that proposal is that they want to undo the incarceration measures in the Biden crime bill of 1994. And now the Biden campaign endorses the gist of that proposal. So it is essentially an acknowledgement that he wants to undo one of the major things that he took credit for for many years. And and if part of the genesis of this bill was Joe Biden working in close contact with law enforcement groups and essentially letting them write parts of this bill, what is his relationship like with law enforcement now? And are they backing his campaign? Well, for a number of years, some of these major groups, including the National Association of Police Organizations, did back Biden. For example, they endorsed the um, Obama-Biden ticket in 08 and then in 12. They did not endorse anyone in, in 16. And this time around, they're looking at who to endorse. It seems unlikely. I interviewed the current head of that group. Um, and he is concerned about what Biden is talking about today as far as the various police reform measures. There's a lot of pushback from police groups and police unions on some of the efforts to reform police departments. But there are a lot of police groups that once were very strongly allied with Biden and they, they're they not anymore. Um, they've pushed away from that. And although Biden probably will sit down for interviews for possible endorsements, it does not seem likely that he would get them this time around. So this fraught history of the 1994 crime bill, how does that put Joe Biden as a presidential candidate up against President Trump? Because Trump has a kind of complicated history with this as well. You know, he considers himself the law and order president. Um, He's made remarks over the years that many people think are disparaging to people of color and and called people thugs in in ways that, that especially people of color found offensive. But at the same time, he did pass a major criminal justice reform bill that was one of the successes of his administration. Right. So Trump is going to try to take advantage of that. He's pointed out already, you know, in a tweet, for example, that he passed a reform bill um, regarding sentencing, for example, and then pointed to what Biden did with the crime bill. So Trump does see this as a valuable political issue, and he has uh, courted uh, black voters. And for him, you know, while he's not going to win anywhere near a large number of black voters, he he wants to get at least enough to make a difference in the election. So, you know, he has tried to chip away at that. And he sees this as an opening because he knows that Biden was criticized within his own Democratic Party over the crime bill um, by, for example, uh, African-American opponents during the primaries, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker. So Trump does see this, uh, you know, as a possible opening for him. And although Trump has a very different stand on so many different socioeconomic policies uh, than Biden regarding things that would affect directly the black community, um, he sees this as a, as a wedge to use against Biden. And he's already done that on Twitter and most likely would do so during the rest of the campaign. Michael Cranish is an investigative political reporter for The Post. Between tour cancellations, lost creative gigs, and shrinking ad revenue, the COVID-19 crisis is making it clear that the system supporting creative people is broken. Patreon offers a better way. We help creators make up lost revenue and build a more sustainable income source by offering a monthly membership to their fans. In turn, fans get access to exclusive community and premium content 
and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. Check out Patreon.com now and help change the way art is valued. And now, one more thing. I mean, if you can do this, we'll let you just Today, do, uh, doctors at Northwestern Medicine in Chicago announced a major breakthrough. They have successfully performed a double lung transplant on a COVID patient, giving a new pair of lungs to a woman in her 20s who was active and healthy until the virus decimated her lungs. We are really happy to see that uh, she's recovering well from the lung transplantation. And we are happy to be able to offer the chance of the new life for this very young patient. This appears to be the first transplant surgery on a COVID patient in the U.S. And it could be a new option to help people recover from the virus. You know, um, <laughs> the, I tell you, this was one of the toughest transplants I've done. I, you know, I serve as a surgical director of transplantation here, and I've done majority of transplants at Northwestern Medicine. But this was truly one of the most challenging cases. That's Ankit Barath, the hospital's chief of thoracic surgery. He performed the transplant, and he jumped on a Zoom call to explain what makes this surgery such a big deal. So she had COVID-19, and she very rapidly uh, developed a pretty severe lung injury, and then she needed to be on the ventilator for a few days. So she ultimately cleared the virus, but the virus led to permanent damage to her lungs, in her case, you know, this, the injury was so severe that uh, despite waiting a number of weeks, uh, you know, she was not going to get better. Now, the second thing that happened in her case was once the lungs failed, then the heart has to work really hard to push blood into the lungs, and then it tends to fail. So she had started to develop heart failure. And then as a result of that, because the heart is not able to push the blood forward, everything gets backed up. So the next thing that starts to take a hit is the liver. So then she started to develop liver failure and then the kidneys start to shut down. So at that point, we said, well, we need to, you know, fix the underlying problem, which is the lung. But the trick with doing a life-saving double lung transplant on a COVID patient is you have to make sure that they don't have COVID. So in her case, we waited until she uh, cleared the virus and then we transplanted her. And we actually tested her at least four times using the fluid from her lungs to make sure that she has cleared the virus. Because, you know, if there's a potential risk, if she has active virus and you transplant her uh, and give her, you know, a lot of immunosuppression, that virus could also affect the new lungs and really cause severe damage. The woman who received this transplant is not being identified right now to protect her privacy, and she's still in the hospital. But Dr. Barath says that he's hopeful that she will be okay and go back to living a pretty normal life. She is awake now. She actually FaceTimed with her family today. She was smiling. She's starting to move all her extremities. Her new lungs, as I said, are working well. So now it's just a matter of getting her stronger and uh, back to full recovery. You know, I, th I think we've heard so many stories of people who have gotten COVID and have really, really struggled with it, right? They might survive, but they, if they end up on a ventilator, they have significant damage to their lungs. And you hear these stories of 30 and 40-year-olds who are otherwise active and healthy and all of a sudden come out of this barely being able to breathe on their own. So what you did in this surgery, is that a potential solution for people in the future that will be seeing a lot more lung transplants for people who have survived COVID but have come out really hard hit? 
Absolutely. Just like you said, a, a fair number of patients who recover from the ventilator, you know, we are seeing that these patients are quite disabled from the lung perspective. They go home on a lot of oxygen and they have developed a lot of lung fibrosis. I certainly expect that some of these patients will have such a severe lung injury that they will likely not be able to carry on without a transplant. I absolutely think that this could serve as a life-saving intervention on those patients. So that's number one. And the second thing what we've realized is, you know, sometimes it takes a long time for these patients to clear the virus. It could take four weeks. It could take two months. Um, so if we support them with uh, the best medical tools, uh, you know, we should be able to see that clearance. And then if lungs are the only things that you know, remain injured, uh, which we see in a, a fair number of patients, lung transplant could be a life-saving intervention in those patients as well. So they don't have to, to die just because the lungs didn't get better. Ankit Barath is Chief of Thoracic Surgery at Northwestern Medicine in Chicago. Science reporter Lenny Bernstein helped with this story. it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's Post reports, the long history of Hollywood's fascination with police and why that may need to change. I love cop stories. You know, they're just perfect story engines, but they're not politically neutral ones either. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Patreon. If you're a podcaster, YouTuber, musician, writer, illustrator, if you're a creative person of any kind, or simply love one, now is the time to check out Patreon.com. Now is the time to join the millions of fans and creators who are changing the way art is valued.